Happy holidays, everyone, and welcome back to the Film Cafeteria. I'm Scott. And I'm Brittany. Happy holidays. We are coming to you guys. Um, it is Christmas Eve. Yes. We are hanging out with the Christmas tree on. I have uh, a beer. <laughs> <laughs> and a glass of wine. Yeah. And um, we're here today to talk about holiday movies in general, but in particular... Two movies, uh, 1990's Edward Scissorhands and uh, from Tim Burton, great yeah. movie, good uh -huh. holiday movie, and 1977's New York, New York by Martin Scorsese. So those are going to be our two predominant movies we're going to be talking about. Um, yeah, because we decided to do holiday picks. Yep. And those were the two we chose for our holiday picks. Yes. And... I guess just before we jump into these two movies specifically, I'm curious, so what is, for you, what is a holiday movie? For me, a holiday movie is anything that just makes you feel in the spirit. Like, anything that makes you feel like it's the holiday season and nostalgia and tradition and all those things that come with the holidays because that's all you're celebrating during the holidays so any movie that makes you feel the same way the holidays do is a holiday movie for me yeah i think it's about the same for me um but just out of curiosity like outside of edward scissorhands was your pick yes but outside of edward scissorhands what are some other holiday movies that you would point to i love the oh, i love elf mm -hmm. that has will ferrell yeah, yeah the john favreau um, one of mine is just the Peter Pan, but I think it's like the 2004 Peter Pan. Yeah. Um, and then I love The Nightmare Before Christmas, which is mm -hmm. another Tim Burton movie. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, that's just the name of you. Yeah. And it is kind of interesting because you mentioned Elf and Will Ferrell, and this year Will Ferrell has a new Christmas movie out with Ryan Reynolds. Yes. Which we tried to watch. Yes, we, we didn't tried. get very far. No, <laughs> just <laughs> I was having a hard time with it. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, funnily enough, also this year, Henry Selick, who directed Nightmare Before Christmas, has a new movie out with Jordan Peele. Yes. Uh, called Wendell and Wild, which is uh, it's been getting some good review. It's a movie that that I think uh, will end up checking out to some degree or another before. 
uh, one of our upcoming episodes where we go through movies that came out this past year. Yes, but now you have to name what are some of your holiday movies. So some of mine, uh, I, I would I would agree with Elf. I mean, my other really big one is uh, uh, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's like one of my all time favorites that I have to watch every single year, no matter <laughs> what. Um, but then um, most of mine are animated stuff okay. because for me. The stuff that I remember as a kid about the holidays all revolved around animated specials. Yeah. So be it The Simpsons or Family Guy. But then, you know, kind of more specifically stuff like How the Grinch Stole Christmas, the original Frosty, the original Rudolph, and of course, Merry Christmas, Charlie Brown. Yes. Classics. (laughs) So to me, when I think of Christmas, I actually don't really think that much of live action stuff. And I actually don't always really like... I mean, Nightmare Before Christmas is another one for mm-hmm. me, but don't always really like live action Christmas stuff all that much, unless it is kind of ridiculous and absurd. Yeah. I like A Christmas Carol, but I also really like Black Christmas, both by the same director, Bob Clark, and mm-hmm. like I and of course Christmas Vacation. There were some crazy killer Santa Claus movies that came out this year I want to check out. So like, I like a lot of kind of stuff like that is usually what I lean into. Yeah, I don't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the one Christmas I do remember watching Black Christmas. So mm-hmm. it's funny because we did put it on one year when I was like between 12 and 14. Because I remember I was in middle school when that was on one night. And my mom was actually like, we were decorating the tree mm-hmm. while that was on TV. That's funny. Yeah, I. it's one of those things where... Uh, that is a double feature that I strongly recommend to anybody that likes horror movies. But then, you know, like if, if you have like two people sitting there and one of you likes horror movies and the other one just kind of puts up with them, then the other one really likes comedies Mm -hmm. and the person who likes horror just kind of puts up with it to some degree or another. (laughs) Uh, that is a tremendous double feature to see two different things. First, like how the same person can deal with Christmas on two different completely opposite ends of the spectrum okay but then the other thing is too is that it it shows the breadth of a career in 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 one sitting Mm -hmm. where it's like you see black christmas bob clark was just kind of starting out and he made the movie that created the slasher genre more or less and or you know established a lot of the tropes of the slasher genre and then a christmas carol a movie that just got a sequel this year oh really like this year a sequel came out that I think is exclusive to HBO Max. Okay. For a Christmas Carol, and you're in, in that movie has been a staple of I think most of our lives within, like you know, most of our lives in America. For, yeah. I mean, since I was a kid, at least. I mean, I remember being a kid going to. I don't know if you remember Suncoast Video. Yes, I remember. I remember going to Suncoast Video, and there was an actual life-size statue in there of the dad holding the leg lamp. <laughs> And so, and I remember seeing that as a kid, thinking to myself, I'm like, what dirty movie is that from? Yeah. And then it was like around Christmas time, I think we were like in Iowa or something, and we watched A Christmas Carol. I mean, uh, um, Christmas Story. A Christmas Story with uh, my cousins. Yeah. And we're just like, and I was like, oh, that's, that's the dirty movie. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So like that, but um, also another one that just occurred to me was A Muppet's Christmas Carol. Oh, yeah. But I never really watched that one too much. I don't know why, but I didn't. I, I really loved it. I also, I mean, this just goes back, though, to my love of 
kind of animated stuff. I also have like a love for like the Muppets and Sesame Street and like puppetry. Yeah. So like all of that stuff is all stuff that I love. So that was another one that just occurred to me. What is interesting though, when thinking about holiday movies, is how many people I've talked to who when they mention a holiday movie, it is a movie that has nothing to do with Christmas. Oh yeah. But it is a movie that is just ingrained because it came out around Christmas time. And I think I told you that there's a woman that I work with who had mentioned that her Christmas movie every year is Django Unchained. <laughs> I was like, why? Then I realized it was released on Christmas Day. <laughs> Which like, we went to the theater and watched, right? We saw it on Christmas. I guess and I guess this year, uh, if Disney has their way, we will only be able to see Avatar 2 yeah. on Christmas Day. <laughs> so <laughs> we will have to report back on what we end up seeing on Christmas Day. Yeah. But... Um, and then, funnily enough, last year we saw Licorice Pizza yeah. on Christmas Day. Mm-hmm. But um, it is very, very interesting to see what people consider a Christmas movie. It made me think a lot about the fact that uh, it just mentally I still consider There Will Be Blood, even though I rarely ever watch it around Christmas, I still consider that a Christmas movie to some degree. So it's also interesting what movies get ingrained yeah. in somebody's mind just because they saw them around Christmas time. Do yeah. you have a movie like that? I don't think I do, honestly, because most of all the movies that I do remember or I keep in my head as a tradition and I watch and rewatch are all like Christmas related. Like in some part of the movie, yeah, it's the holiday season. Gotcha. So, yeah. <laughs> I think the only one that I have that is kind of an oddball, it's not really about the holiday season or anything, but I didn't get a chance to do it this year, but... Um, Usually every year when I'm wrapping gifts, I watch Last of the Mohicans. Oh, yeah. And so that is like that odd, that oddball Christmas movie for me. Which now that I actually think about Last of the Mohicans would make a very interesting double feature with the Peter Pan that you like. Yeah. So (laughs) (laughs) maybe we can do that on this Christmas Eve. Yes. (laughs) But anyway, so now we're going to jump into talking about Edward Scissorhands, and then we're going to get into New York, New York. Yes. Hope you guys enjoy. starting our holiday episode here with Edward Scissorhands from 1990, directed by Tim Burton, a uh, story by Tim Burton and Caroline Thompson, um, and of course, the great musical score by Danny Elfman. This was your holiday pick. Yes, it was. I would like for you to talk a little bit about how you first saw this one and, and what makes it the movie that you want to talk about on this Christmas Eve? Well, I can't exactly remember when I first saw it, but I do remember it being when I was a kid because my dad, you know, was a big movie fan. So he would actually 
pick it up, pick a lot of the movies when we were kids. And I actually even remember having this as a VHS. Yeah. So I owned this movie on VHS when I was a child. Mm -hmm. And so we would put it in every year for Christmas as well. That would be a Christmas pick when I was a kid. So it just, I kept the tradition and I just kept watching it every Christmas. So yeah. I think the first time that I saw it was also on VHS. I mean, we, we are of that age where it's like we were at the end of the yeah. VHS era because I remember the transition from VHS to DVD. Yeah, me too. Um, it, I think that was how I saw it also. I really, really remember the poster. Yeah. The poster mm -hmm. was like, I mean, this came out December 7th, 1990. I was born November 18th, 1990. So, like, <laughs> I did not see this in the theater. I was Neither not even. Did I, though, because I was at that time. That means I was only like four. So I, I wasn't. Yeah, I would not have even been able to have been aware of this film. <laughs> I think like it was ingrained in my DNA somewhere, so I was slightly aware of it, but just yes. didn't know yet. Okay, that is some powerful <laughs> new technology. <man. laughs> but um, I do remember by the time I was, you know, like consciously going to the video store with my family and stuff like that and going into even um i remember going into places like uh, spencer's gifts mm -hmm. and they had the poster section yes. in there and i remember seeing posters of johnny depp and all of the gear yeah with winona yeah. you know like kind of that little scene toward the end um and i just remember all the imagery of the movie I similarly can't really remember exactly when the first time that I saw it was, but I remember that imagery was just kind of stuck yeah. in my head. And it was, it was something that, that definitely I would kind of like obsessively go back to over and over again, in particular with Tim Burton, because he was kind of like my first favorite director that I had. Yeah. So um, I guess getting into the movie a little bit, um, what is it about this one in particular that you that you love or that, that just kind of speaks to you? I don't know because you know what? I think a lot of it has to do with how in the beginning, you remember how it's like really bright and sunny. Mm -hmm. That part of Christmas, I can't re really relate to as much because... I've always been somewhere. And we, like, grew up, we grew up with seasons. Yeah, yeah. We grew up with seasons. So it's usually pretty cold during the yeah. winter time. It's pretty cold around Christmas. I mean, today it is literally like 12 degrees outside. Yes, <laughs> exactly. And it's Christmas Eve. And that's what I'm used to. I'm used yeah. to really cold weather around the holidays. But in this movie, it was like so bright and sunny and no one wore jackets or had hats or gloves and stuff on. Gloves and stuff on. Mm -hmm. And I thought, I was like, I can't really relate to that part. But though, one day I really would like yeah. to go somewhere really warm and have a really warm Christmas. Yeah. Um, so that was more of a fantasy or like a dream that I'll do one day. Yeah. But the part I could relate to in the movie was the sadness. Because usually around the holidays, we associated a lot with, you know, happiness and being around family and just being thankful for the people you love and having gifts and nice food and all these good desserts and stuff like that, that just really pumps everything through and, and your endorphins are going wild at that yeah. moment. But I also relate to the sadness because there was such a melancholy to this movie. Yeah, absolutely. And I can super, super relate. Mm -hmm. I mean, there were some times during 
the holidays where sometimes you feel a little sad. Mm -hmm. You don't quite know or always understand why. Yeah. But sometimes I felt sad during the holiday, but I think it was because it was ending one year yeah. and going to another, and yeah. things were just so up in the air. It was so unknown. And that's how I see that movie, and that's how I can relate to that movie. Yeah, I mean, because whenever you get to the end of the year, there is a sense of finality to it. Yes. You know, because, it, and it's it's an odd thing to be at a, a point in the year where you're simultaneously celebrating, you know, the people that you love and the, you know, the fact that you're you're moving into a new chapter, which is a very hopeful thing. But you're also like slightly acknowledging mortality just a yeah. little bit. Yep. <laughs> you know, because you're one year older. You're one year um, older. If you have kids, they're yes. one year closer to being gone yep. from the house. And adults, you know? and you're worried about them. Not only that, but it also comes to a point of you kind of have to reckon with what your year has been like, and that's what makes you, I think brings on the emotions mm -hmm. for the next year because it's all about what has gone on in this year yeah and then that makes you feel what you feel at the end of the year i think yeah and and you know it's interesting because from the perspective of the film there's also a very fascinating little thing i mean you know there's a couple of things i mean one thing was that this was a story that tim burton came up with when he was a teenager mm -hmm. and he grew up he grew up in kind of like the i think like the burbank area of california so he experienced those kind of warm, yeah, you know the the like what we would consider like almost like hot summer days, yeah, during Christmas, yeah. <laughs> um, and and but he also you know I think felt very isolated within the kind of suburban environment that he grew up in, and he had sketched a character when he was a teenager that had weird was like kind of a spindly character that had weird scissor hands yeah and that was the basis for this film and he he really wanted to talk about a character that was completely alone and looking for a sense of family the thing that i think is very fascinating about the movie that also has a sense of finality too is the inclusion of vincent price this was vincent price's final movie yeah but vincent price was also a huge inspiration for tim burton so there was this sense, you know, Tim Burton was coming off of Batman. He got the blank, he got the blank check moment in his uh, career. And he chose to do this movie. This was developed from an original story, whereas his previous movies were all kind of director for higher situations. And the person that he wanted to bring in was Vincent Price, who was his hero. And right as Tim Burton's career was starting to come up, Vincent Price unfortunately passed away. So there is that weird sense of melancholy, I think, that kind of just permeates over the film. Yeah. And that, that sense of a new beginning and also the kind of conclusion of something as well. Yes. And it's really, really fascinating that all that is embedded inside of the film. And that without even knowing that Vincent Price was going to pass away, he slightly talks about that. You know, without really ever directly saying it, you know, Vincent Price plays... The scientist that created yes. Edward Scissorhands, uh -huh. and in all of his old movies, he was some version of a mad scientist. A lot of times, yeah. who indirectly created Tim Burton, <laughs> and <laughs> in terms of as an artist, yes. And suddenly, you have 
this very awkward, very uncomfortable character with this crazy hair that looks a lot like Burton's <laughs> that witnesses the death of this thing that created him, this you know individual that created him. It's very, very fascinating, that loop that exists both within the story and outside of it that yeah. I think speaks to exactly what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, so how did you feel about this movie? I, I like it a lot. I mean, it's uh, it's not my favorite of Burton's movies, but it's still a movie that, like, every single time I watch it, I get wrapped up in. Yeah. Um, in in particular, I mean, I think that, you know, I mean, we we all know everything with Johnny Depp and everything, but, like, just looking back at, like, the way that his career was when we were first finding out about him, seeing some of those early movies, in particular this one, and Benny and June, and remembering that as a young actor, he had this, like, Buster Keaton quality to him. Yeah, I mean, Benny and June is, like, still one of my favorites. It's a great film, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Like, he had had kind of that trifecta with this one, Benny and June, and What's Eating Gilbert Grape. Yes. And those were three films that I think, I mean, we've both watched them together, but then also, like, those are three films that I think really informed a certain age group and were interesting films because they showcased the kind of wide array of odd characters that this guy could yes. do. Yeah. You know, what's he in Gilbert Grape? He, like, DiCaprio was the one who was giving the performance of performances mm-hmm. in that film. But Johnny Depp's performance in that movie was pretty astounding. It was just so understated. And it was one of those things where you didn't really necessarily know depending on the order that you saw these movies, you didn't necessarily know that he could do one thing or another. You know, like, you didn't necessarily know that he could play that character in Gilbert Grape, the same way you didn't necessarily know that he could play the character in Penny and June, if you, you know. And then when you get to Edward Scissorhands, there's something very interesting where there's a little bit of both of those performances kind of layered in there, but there's this interesting aspect about a blank slate that's covered in scars. Yeah. And that's sort of what he was in that movie yeah. was he was like this completely blank slate that the only thing that this character was looking for was love. Yeah. He was pure of heart while the humans yeah. were the monsters in this Absolutely. movie. Absolutely. It is interesting in that it is a universal monster movie that sides with the monster. Yeah. Like all throughout, which I can relate to because I love Universal monster movies, and I always think that they should win. <laughs> Not me. It depends on the situation, and in this situation, one hundred percent. Maybe one. <laughs> maybe not the Bella Lugosi Dracula, but I like Frankenstein and the Wolfman. <laughs> but um, I guess this brings us into something else, which is the the actors in the film, yeah, and the performances that were given um we've talked a lot about the actors in this movie and a lot about the performances that that came up throughout it um what like for you when you're watching a movie like who are who like what was kind of your takeaway with the performers like who are the people that you, i mean was there anybody in particular that kind of pulled you in outside of Johnny, because I know for for me personally, like one of the things was that the family that is shown in the movie outside of Depp, yeah, I can really relate to that family because as you know, having met my family, yeah. 
those were kind of the families that surrounded us. Yeah. And that neighborhood that he's in was very kind of similar to the neighborhood that I grew up in to a degree. Yeah. Uh, just in the sense of like, yeah, there really was an Avon lady. <laughs> there really was, <laughs> you know, these little little aspects of it, and especially the Alan Arkin character. There's something about him that's like I've met that dad a yeah. lot in my life. <laughs> so I'm just curious for you, like with with the performances, was there one that kind of or a few that kind of stood out to you outside of just Deb? Because one of the things with this movie, I think, is that a lot of people kind of forget a lot of the other people that are in it until they rewatch the movie. Yeah, I mean, I love the mother of the movie. Diane Weiss. Yeah. Yes, I, like, she's amazing to me, which I've seen her in a few things and always loved her. I mean, she was in Parenthood with Steve mm-hmm. Martin yeah. and, and stuff like that, and Joaquin was her son at the yeah. time. So I remember, like, I've seen a few of her movies. Also, Dan in Real Life. Yep. She was the mother of Dan in Real Life. Um so I've seen a few of her movies that I'm always in awe of her. She's just so like gorgeous and talented to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're asking me, <laughs> can I relate to any of it? I would say no. Yeah. Uh, I guess a little bit, very tiny. Like there's this very like mm-hmm. piece, like tiny little piece that it can't even be measured on a scale mm-hmm. <laughs> that I can relate to. Yeah. Just because my my like neighborhood and growing up and stuff, we moved around a lot mm-hmm. and. But whenever we did settle in a neighborhood, it was funny because we would get to meet everybody and we would know each other very well. Like all the parents, I would go, like we were able to go over everybody else's house. They were able to come over to ours. So our parents were very like, especially my mom, she was a very get to know all your friends' parents and your friends Mm -hmm. before you can do anything or go anywhere with anybody. So that's how she was. So in that particular sense, I guess, it was because it was like a knit community whenever we did like stay put for a while but we moved around a lot so i never really had that kind of opportunity to like know someone my whole life in one neighborhood yeah which this movie does it you can tell it's based on that like everybody's known everybody forever and it's very interesting too that you know we mentioned this yeah when we were watching the film but at the end of the movie you realize that she never left the neighborhood or or yeah, yeah it you, just have a, you have a separate you theory exactly. about it. Exactly, yeah. my separate separate theory is that she could have left. Yeah, we never know, but she could have come right back to the place where it all started. Because a yeah. lot of us will leave the nest, mm-hmm. and then when we're all grown up and we're adult and we've had our experiences and we have learned a lot about the world, we come back to what we know, mm-hmm. which is back home. Mm-hmm. And I, for all we know. She could have went out there and experienced the whole entire world and then came back and settled where she grew up at. Yeah. It, it is interesting, though, when you get to the end of the movie and she's telling a story to her granddaughter. Because it was one of those things that I never, I'd always noticed it, but I never really, like, thought it out loud yeah. until when we rewatched it to do this, that the film does end where she is talking to her granddaughter and telling the story of why it snows which is the story of how she met Edward. Mm -hmm. And then the camera just pulls away from the window and you're still in the same neighborhood and it just rotates up to where he still is. We don't ask questions like, how does he get the blocks of ice up there? That ruins the magic. It does. (laughs) (laughs) But we don't ask these questions because it's, it's a beautiful fairy tale. Yeah. But, um, 
Uh, it is interesting, though, that aspect of it that, you know, when you mentioned like the close knit kind of aspect of these people and the idea that, you know, it's like, you know, the same people your entire life within this kind of very isolated kind of world yeah. that that would carry through all the way to the ending. And it, it's a curious thing in that it's not really very clear whether that was narrative convenience of like which it probably it, which was. it probably was <laughs> it likely was but like it creates a very interesting perspective because that is the one thing about Kim the character why not a writer plays that you don't really know yeah they never really talk about any sense of her hopes and dreams for the future when you see her as a younger girl I mean because that was never really the point because if you really think about it that movie was all about in the moment it was and so because it was so about in the moment I mean yeah we're not thinking about that it's very interesting because it almost feels like that was a calculated decision yeah whether or not it was I don't really know but it also kind of allowed for this character to be the one character in the whole entire story because when I think about it I think about the fact that Every other character around Edward is always talking about the future. They're always talking about this sense of, you know, Alan Arkin's character sitting there like, you, you gotta get money. You yeah. gotta make money. Yeah. Diane Weist is kind of like, you know, maybe we can try and do stuff with your scars. You know, she's looking ahead for what she can do for his skin. Yeah. The Anthony Michael Hall character, who I'm surprised we haven't even mentioned yet, yes. <laughs> um, is talking about how he wants a car and he wants money and he wants all this stuff. Everybody's always talking about the future. The, um, in particular, the Kathy Baker character who yes. is obsessed with the, in the future, she's just going to have sex with somebody. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she sits there and she seduces every man, every that, man that comes by. And then when cable you, guy, and then when the you, repair guy, the repair guy at the beginning <laughs> is one of my favorite little bits where you just see the guy and this look on his face of just like, please stop. Yeah, Please just you can stop. tell that he was uncomfortable. I was like, "Oh no!" Um, but the the only character in the entire story who never really talks about that is Kim, and she's the one person that seems to be able to enjoy the moment of what Edward is doing. Yeah, she's the only other person that seems to be able to live, kind of within just like you said just the moment and not really needing to actually go outside of it and think about you know all these amazing things about the future and all this other stuff. she seems very kind of like no like I'm, I'm good yeah because you know what also too i think she was also the character that was meant to be grounded yeah you know grounded in reality because even you know she loved him and you remember after she goes up to his house and then anthony michael hall's character follows them yep so he can somehow deal with Edward. Mm -hmm. And she even says that she, like, we can never, like, go. She tells him to run. Yeah. And tells him to go and get away. And then she tells the story when she's an older woman. Mm -hmm. So that tells you that she was the only one that was realistic in the view of, like, this whole entire situation. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Which is really fascinating that, you know, you have one character that, has a realistic view of the most unrealistic thing that you've ever seen. Yeah. But you have to have that character, you know, yeah. at the same time. And it's a fascinating thing. The, the way that I think that they dealt with all of those little intricacies within the story and the way that Carolyn Thompson kind of wrote the script, it all feels very calculated. Yeah. 
in ways that a lot of other Christmas movies, even some of the ones that we've pointed to, don't necessarily feel that calculated. Yeah. You know, and, and this is, you know, we had talked about it a little bit before, and we were like, yeah, it's an, it's an odd holiday movie. And the more and more that I've thought about it, I'm like, it's really not, though. I mean, it is a true-to-form Christmas movie. Yes, it is. And, but at the same time as it being a true-to-form Christmas movie, it's so awkward <laughs> and so odd that it stands outside of every other Christmas movie. Yeah. And it's interesting to me that the movie of Tim Burton's, and of course, you know, he didn't direct Nightmare Before Christmas, and that's come up with Henry Selleck recently this year and everything, but that's the movie that really should have been the the oddball standing outside Christmas movie. Yeah. And it's instead become like the inherent, like, my kid is five, it's time to watch Nightmare Before Christmas with him movie. <laughs> yeah. Edward Scissorhands was the one that on the surface really should have been the Christmas movie that we all go back to every single year. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I go back. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's become kind of this one of like, you know, when I've talked to other people about that movie, the thing I always hear a lot is like, oh, the movie makes me so sad. Yeah. And it's like, well, that's part of the point. That's part of what makes it so amazing. Yeah. And that's part of the holidays. If you're, if you're being realistic with yourself, sadness is part of the holidays. Yeah. There are people who don't have family to spend time with. There are people who's dealing with things they had to do with the entire year before mm-hmm. Christmas even hit. Like mm-hmm. sometimes like we don't, we're not realizing like that's, that's actually rooted in reality. Mm-hmm. It's for that to be sad. Yeah. And it, it is interesting when you think about it from the level of, you know, another aspect of the story that it really kind of talks about without ever actually talking about it, which is that, you know, sometimes the, the, the kindest things that you can do for a person that doesn't have that in their life can inform something about the rest of their lives. Yeah. And, you know, that was definitely the case with Edward. Yeah. You know, at the end of the movie, he's still carving ice sculptures of Kim. Yeah. I mean, because there's nothing else that he can really do, you yeah. know? Everybody's scared of him. He can't go outside of, like, that neighborhood because yeah. to him, that's all... That's the start and, like, the end of his world. So he starts and he stops there. And that's the yeah. sad part to me about his character is that he stop, He starts and stops there. Yeah. But he'll... For the rest of the... I guess until the earth ends because he doesn't age. Yeah, he doesn't age. And... He can't die because he's not he made of anything. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess until the the end of the planet, until the end of time, as we know it, he will uh, forever remember this one yeah. moment that Unless, he had in like his life. Like the mechanisms that make up him stops working. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and it's like that. That to me is like a fascinating thing to kind of put in there. That is a great like little Christmas message and yeah. everything. So. Yeah, I don't know. This was one that I had a lot of fun revisiting, despite the fact that, you know, I've seen it a million times before. I mean, it was still fun to go back and look at it again in a new light. Yeah, and, and I think that's the reason why I like to go back to it as an adult, because when I was a kid, I loved watch, watching that movie. Like, I enjoyed it, but I didn't really fully know or understand it until I became an adult, and that's why I love it now. It's yeah. because I understand it more as an adult. Yeah. Yeah. Any, um... Well, I guess real quick before we wrap up, um, this movie was a tremendous success. It was made for on a $20 million budget around the Tampa Bay, Florida area, and it grossed 
about $86 million. Okay, awesome. This was almost, at, at the time, almost entirely off of Tim Burton's name. Yeah. There was the built-in fan base for Johnny Depp. There was a little bit of a fan base for Wynonna Ryder. It was more than anything that I marketed as from the director of Batman. Yes. <laughs> and that, you know, ended up helping turn this into a, a major blockbuster, which um, I don't know that you would get $20 million to make this movie today. So that's yeah. kind of wild to think about that this movie had a full $20 million budget was able to gross back $86 yeah. million. And nowadays, can a movie be made on $20 million? I mean... From the way that everyone has things set up, can it? <laughs> you know, I, I, it's a very interesting question as to whether or not something like this could because, um, you know, Tim Burton himself hasn't made, I think with exception of movies like Big Eyes, hasn't really made too many movies under that $100 million mark yeah. in a while. Yeah. So I would be very curious from the standpoint of the way that he works, the way that his art direction works, which of course is such a huge aspect of his films. I would be very, very curious if he could actually make something that would fully realize his his vision that was as weird as this yeah. for that amount of money. Yeah. Maybe um, if Tim Burton is listening, this is a curious exercise for him to do, and he can pay us royalties for that. So. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, wrapping this one up, do you have any final thoughts on on Edward Scissorhands? No, other than the fact I just really enjoy this movie every year. Yeah. So it's a tradition for me. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's about the same for me, you know. Um, every time I go back to it, I always sit there and look at Anthony Michael Hall, and I'm just kind of like, it just doesn't make any sense. I know, and this this will be one of the movies where, like, when I have children, they will sit down and watch with me, and I will be the kid. Yeah. And they will be like, I don't understand. And then I'm like, but you have to have. Like, <laughs> I will be the one being childish in that moment. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is weird to see Anthony Michael Hall in this movie essentially being the Judd Nelson character. Yeah. <laughs> a much rougher version yeah. of the Breakfast Club Judd Nelson <laughs> character. That's always been kind of funny to me. Um, so yeah, well, if we don't have anything else, we will move on to our next movie, which is New York, New York. Yes. Awesome. We got 1977's New York, New York, directed by Martin Scorsese, written by Martin Martin and Earl Mac Roche, who also create, who also um, uh, has a story by credit as well, and um, shot by the great Laszlo Kovacs, starring Louise, uh, Liza Minnelli and Robert De Niro. So, 
This was my pick. Yeah, I was, I was going to ask you, what did you, <laughs> like, why was this your pick for the holidays? So this gets into, like, a very, very curious question about, it, thinking about this movie again as we were watching it, I was like, I think I would consider this more of, like, a New Year's movie than <laughs> necessarily, like, a Christmas well, movie. Which is still the holiday, you So know? that's my question, is, like, is there, is there any differentiation between a New Year's movie and a Christmas movie? And besides... What was it? Happy New Year, I think it was called. The Gary Marshall movie. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, I think so. It was like he did like the Valentine's yep. Day one, the New Year's one, the, yep. yeah, all the different ones. Um, is there really a tradition of New Year's cinema? Like, I can't really think of too too many movies that are not quote really. unquote New Year's movies. Yeah, they're not New Year's, but like I will say hmm. that a lot of Christmas movies will then sometimes like add that as a factor into their movies because they're so close together. They're just a week apart. Yeah. Yeah, so, it, yeah. It, it is It is kind of an interesting thing that I started thinking about where it's not necessarily a New Year's movie. It's not necessarily a Christmas movie, but there's something about it. I think it's the music and the... the, the... Well, it kind of is a Christmas movie a little bit because at the end, remember, mm-hmm. uh, Robert De Niro's character, yeah. Jimmy? Yeah, Jimmy at, Doyle. Yeah, he actually asked uh, Liza Minnelli uh, character who is Francine in yep. the movie. Francine Evans. Yeah, like he asked her, um, did he get the drum set that I sent him? Like their yeah. son. Yeah. So I'm like, that tells you, like, yeah. I mean, somewhat Christmas, right? Yeah. <laughs> Christmas or birthday, and they're, they're, it's all cold. Yeah, the movie. it's cold the entire time. There, there's, there's always this aspect, even when it's technically supposed to be summer, it's all on a set. So there's always this aspect of, of it being dreamy and glowy. Yeah. There is this, um, <laughs> this layer of you know I mean I think that uh for a lot of people there's this aspect of older movies kind of inherently being quote-unquote holiday movies for me personally I don't really understand this mentality yeah because I watch (laughs) older movies kind of like year-round so I don't necessarily understand it but uh Vincent Minnelli movies are still oftentimes screened on like TCM or mm-hmm. you know wherever sometimes in revival houses or something around the holidays and well, I think that's because everyone's at home so it's easier to get people to watch it because around that time a lot of people spend time at home I think there's also you know I, I think it's a little bit of that and I think it's also you know I mean they're musicals well yeah that too and so you know there's always something wonderful about when you have the whole family together and you watch a musical like, yeah, it's like in that holiday spirit. That's why I yeah. said it's about the spirit of the movie that makes it a holiday movie. Yeah, it doesn't exactly have to have like exactly. the holidays in it, but I I prefer the ones that have the holidays in right. it. But because yeah. I mean, I, I can remember growing up and watching Sound of Music with my parents yeah. around Christmas. And yeah, it's not necessarily like a Christmas Christmas movie. No, you it's know, not. it's like and, and you know, and the same thing. Um, Meet Me in St. Louis, which yeah. of course there is like a Christmas aspect really to that film. I really love that one too. <laughs> and that's a film that also you can tell deeply influenced this one on multiple levels, on yeah. New York, New York on multiple levels. But um, it, it is a movie though that I I think associate with this time of the year just because of that wintry aspect of it. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't really know necessarily what started that for me outside of like just I think probably the first time I watched it was in, like when I was on winter 
break okay. from school. Do you remember the first time you ever saw New York, New York? I do, actually, because I saw okay. it with my grandmother. The okay. very first time that I ever watched it. I actually still have her VHS copy of it. Um, that was the first time I ever saw the movie. Oh, that's I, awesome. And I actually saw this one really, really close to when I also saw Bob Fosse's Cabaret. Okay. And so I saw both of the movies pretty close together. Um, immediately as a kid, I was like totally in love with Liza Minnelli. <laughs> it took me years to figure out who her family was. Yeah. Because I also really loved The Wizard of Oz. I never would have put together that was her mom. Yes. <laughs> Garland, yes. Because that, it just, it never ever occurred to me. I just thought, like, these are two beautiful women that know how to sing. Yeah. Um, but you can tell she got all her talent from her parents because yeah. she's just amazing in New York, New York. She is. Um, she is, like, what you call a triple threat in those days. Like, yeah. she's just amazing. I think, uh, so the, the conversation of this movie is around these two performances. Yeah. So... I'm going to very quickly run through all of the stuff that we usually kind of like have little chatter about so that we can get to these two performances. <laughs> um, shot in a one six, six aspect ratio, which was it, done intentionally. It was interesting watching it on our TV because it's a little box in the middle of the screen. Yeah. That was kind of a cool little aspect of watching it. The movie's so good though. I barely noticed. I, I, I love it. I love that it's like that, you know, and, and, and it does it, kind of reminds you of kind of older films. Yeah, because it's like a little window into what's happening. I love it. It's so Absolutely. personal and private. It, it really is, and I, I really, really love that that aspect of it. And, um, you know, he did it intentionally because when he grew up seeing a lot of these movies, he didn't necessarily see them on their first run of the theater. He saw a lot of them on TV. So he wanted to intentionally shoot it in such a way that it transferred very well to oh, TV. Awesome. Okay. So that was like a really, really fascinating little thing. Um, the movie was also a failure. <laughs> In the Made, box office. Uh, box office failures were released June 21st, 1977. I'm very curious if it was released in the winter. Would it have done better? Yes, I think so. <laughs> Hands down. You know, I, I'm curious because there wasn't really a sense of release strategy back then the way that there is now. If, if New York, New York was made today, this movie would definitively be a prestige release it would be released around the the christmas or new year's time that's why i do believe that yes if it would have been released later even without knowing a strategy if it would have been released later then definitely i i really am curious uh at that time whether or not it would have picked up specifically because a lot of the reason for its failure was people thinking that this was a movie stuck in a different time that nobody was interested in anymore wow Okay. Um, a lot of the critical reception for the movie was very divided and very rough and kind of like Martin Scorsese just got off a taxi driver and now he wants all of us to watch him make this little musical project that goes on for way too long. Okay. Movie made for $14 million and grossed $16.4 million back. Did not do very well. Um, it also sent Martin Scorsese spiraling into a sense of depression and uh, ultimately uh, drove him to that place where he he kind of lost it a little bit and then ended up coming back with Raging Bull. And in that way, I do kind of consider this movie to be kind of the most important movie of this era for Scorsese because I do think this was him shedding a lot of his 
kind of reliance on influences. Mm -hmm. And by the time he comes back a Raging Bull, I think he comes back as his own filmmaker that is not really interested in quoting anybody else anymore. Yeah. And I think that that maintains for the rest of his career where once you get to something like The Wolf of Wall Street or The Irishman, he's quoting himself more than other people. Yeah. And to me, that is the sign of a true, you know, to use that very pretentious term, a true auteur. Yeah. So those are all my little things about this movie so that we can get into what I think is the coolest part of this conversation, which are the two characters at the center of this, Jimmy Doyle and Francine Evans. Yes. <laughs> so knowing this is going to be the biggest part of our conversation, I want to start with when did you first see this movie? And even if you don't necessarily remember when you very first saw it, when was the first time that you saw it that you really reacted to it? And that what was that reaction for you? Wow. I think the very first time I ever saw it was when I was a teenager. But I think I was like late in my teens when I first saw this. And I just thought it was like a really cool like movie. Yeah. And it wasn't actually until you and I saw it together for the first time mm -hmm. where it actually made an impact on me. Okay. Because it was always something I was watching. I was like, oh, this is cool. This is cool. And then I would like, I would forget about it. It's just as soon as I would watch it, I, for I forget about it. But then one day you and I a long time ago sat down and watched it. And that's when I actually started to like really take in the movie yeah. and remember it. And like I said, I think it takes sometimes for you to grow as yeah. a human being, sometimes to understand certain things. And I think like that's why now it's more solidified in my head than it ever was before. Because mm -hmm. when we sat down and watched it again recently, that's when I things really started to affect me in this mm -hmm. movie was this last time. Yeah. Like the most recent time we watched it. And I was like, whoa. And I could see so much in it. Now as a woman myself mm -hmm. in relationships and dealing with that kind of, like I could see all of it in it. Yeah. But before I was, it wasn't that interesting because I wasn't there. So it, was, it wasn't relatable to me. Yeah. It is, it is a very interesting movie because it's a, it's a tremendous portrait of artists mm -hmm. and of the difficulty of, of relationships within people who are both committed to their art. Mm -hmm. And that, that is one of those things that, like, I think, yeah, for a lot of people, like, there is kind of a glass wall where you're not going to understand, be it from age or from lack of interest in doing anything like them. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of aspects in which you look at this movie and they just look like two crazy people. Yeah. And that's the end of it. And <laughs> yeah. you're just kind of like, okay, that was, that went on for two and a half hours. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> and that was, and that's sort of it. But for me, very similarly, I think, um, just as I've gone on in life, I understand these two people more. Yeah. than I did when I necessarily first saw it. But when I first saw it, I still loved it. But I think I loved the craft of the movie yeah, and the way that it looked and the way that it, the energy of it and all of that. I think I loved that. Anime is really easy as a young kid to, as like a little boy, it's really easy to sit there and just stare at Liza Minnelli <laughs> and also watch Robert De Niro, you mm -hmm. know what I mean? And watch Robert De Niro just be really cool. Yeah, like a man's man. Like, a man's man, really funny. Yeah. He's very funny in this movie. Yeah. 
it's insane to me that he made Midnight Run as a means to prove to people that he could do comedy. Yeah. Because when most people thought about him when he was trying to do comedies, they thought about the king of comedy or like, and were like, that's just creepy. That is not funny at all. That was just weird and we didn't like it. But I'm like, then you guys obviously miss New York, New York, where he is hilarious. Yes. Throughout this entire movie. Now, he's also very tragic. Yeah. But I would say for the first hour of this movie, he is so funny. Yeah. Throughout the whole entire thing. And the hijinks that they, him and Liza Minnelli kind of jump into are so amazing. (laughs) Him dealing with, you know, the, the hotel manager who's like trying to tell him about his bill he's like i got this wooden leg and he throws his leg up on the table <laughs> and he's trying to get the guy to push his leg off and he's like i can't even move it here just just push it off for him, push yeah. it off. and he's like doing all of this absurd stuff and there's even a moment where they cut back to liza minnelli watching him be crazy yeah and it looks like she's really laughing that doesn't look fake yeah it doesn't look like she's acting a laugh <laughs> now she's also a brilliant actor so she yeah. might really be acting a laugh but it really does look like she's just watching De Niro just go for it and just really, really, really just kind of falling head over heels for that. You yeah, know? and that part was funny as well because just as soon as she could laugh, she got really serious and worried. And she was like, no, here's some money. Yeah. Go stay somewhere <laughs> else. Because she didn't want she didn't want him being in, in any relation to her being at that hotel. <laughs> She was just not the kind of person that no. would, like, skip out on her bill. And she doesn't want that kind of, yeah. like, reputation. She yeah. doesn't want to be, any like, anywhere near anyone that has that kind of reputation. She was a very classy woman. She was. So, you, it's so funny because he was a big contrast to her. He was. And, like, while she was all serious and she took everything very... And I don't mean serious as if, like, she was, like, her... Like, no. She was a very delicate but classy. And, like, she took everything serious like yeah. it was like no you need to pay your bill yeah and then she even gave him money so he could stay somewhere else yeah just so he would not be anywhere in relation to her yeah. where she stayed <laughs> so that was funny i thought that was hilarious even from the moment they meet each other you know i mean they are kind of the two oddballs yeah right from the very beginning you know she's when you first meet him he is on a conquest on on VJ Day to get laid. Yeah. And he there's one thing required in that night for him to get laid, which is him wearing his uniform. And he walks in with a Hawaiian shirt. Yeah. And and white slacks. But I got and, it. Yeah. I understood it because from my perspective, it was like he's on vacation. He's no longer Yeah. He's no longer like he, on active duty. He's no. like this is his vacation, so why wouldn't he dress like he's on vacation? And, and you know, I think it was, you know, and there's that moment where he walks up to the other two soldiers, and they're like, where's your uniform, man? Like, why aren't you wearing it? And he's like, I threw it out the window. <laughs> you know, and he's just like, I'm done. Like, I'm done with that part of my life. Yeah. He He's a guy who, from the very moment that you meet him, only knows how to march to the beat of his own drum. Yes. And that's it yes. that is the end of it for him yes there is no there is a lack of comprehension of just like you know if you do this it'll make this easier he's like but why yeah that's he's his, a wild card he is 
And then you meet her. Yeah. And she's the only woman in uniform who's there who's not having a good time with everybody with yeah. everybody else. She's waiting for a guy to show up. And when he finally does, he's standing across the room. It would be three minutes for him to walk across the room and get to her. Yeah. And instead he just turns around and goes, like, Mal's like, I'll call you. Yeah. And then walks away. Yeah. And that's it. And you kind of realize, like, she's the one person there who's actually kind of serious. Yeah. About her life and what she wants and everything. She She's considered and measured in her decisions. Yeah, because I think she already has a set... Like, her mindset was already, like, just... It was already there. It was yeah. already set to a, a certain, like, perspective of what she was... Like, what she considers a man. What can she considers, like, a good time. What, yeah. Like, you could tell all of that is already there in her. Yeah. Like, it, it exists already in her. While everybody else was trying to kind of, like, figure it out, you can tell that she felt like she was confident enough, like, she already knew. And through that... You end up seeing that of everybody in that room, she's the only other person outside of Jimmy that marches to the beat of her own drum. Yeah. She's really not concerned about doing anything that anybody else is doing. Yeah. There's also a hilarious little detail, though, that is a signifier of who she's going to be with Jimmy. Mm-hmm. When her friend that she goes to this party with hooks up with um, uh, the actor who played Frankie Carbone. Yes. And Goodfellas. Yes. Uh, tremendous actor. Uh, the, her buddy, who she's there with, she hooks up with him. And then she goes looking for her friend. Her friend has locked herself in the bathroom. She goes into the room to get all Jimmy stuff. Because Jimmy is trying to duck out on the bill. And she decides to help him <laughs> at the last minute. Because there's something about him yeah. that's there. I think there's just that natural... There's that natural little spark. There's something about him that she actually agrees to go up and get all this stuff. And while she's getting all this stuff, she has this little throwaway line where she says, well, I've dealt with her for long enough. She's yours now. And walks out. Yeah. And leaves her friend with Frankie Carbone. And yeah. he's standing there just like, what am I supposed to do with her? It's amazing to me that that little bitty bit right there already shows you the kinds of relationships that she is kind of used to mm-hmm. are being relationships with people who are emotionally they cling to her yeah and they cling to that certain aspect of her that's always there to be a nurturer mm-hmm. but then you kind of see through her as the story goes on that she's how much more she is than just that that she's also a great leader yeah yes but she sometimes gets kind of stuck in that place of only being the nurturer. Yeah. And I think that becomes a major... Because I think, if I'm being honest, mm-hmm. I think in this story, not trying to be sexist here, but I think a lot of men in the story mm-hmm. was trying to get her to be that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think she was showing like this multi-level part of herself that she's more than that. Mm-hmm. She's all of it, right? And then some. But a, it seems like the men that were trying to get her to be like that were the men that wanted to feel like I'm powerful. I'm the authority. I'm the ruler. And instead she was a queen. Yeah. I am the power. I am the authority. I am a ruler. Yeah. (laughs) So that's how I saw her. (laughs) And you know, it's, it's also really fascinating though, like to your exact point that 
the first person that gives us the slightest little indication that that is how a lot of people view her is a woman. Yeah. And it's a relationship that she has with a girlfriend. Mm-hmm. It gives us that first slight little inkling into how people are going to deal with her for the rest of the story. Which was something really fascinating that I'd never noticed before. Yeah. Um, simultaneously, you kind of already see how people are dealing with Jimmy in that same instance where people are kind of walking up to him, just sort of confused by him walking with this Hawaiian shirt. Like, where, you know, where. <laughs> and then you get to really late in the story where he comes into the, the little get together with her and her producer. Or her manager, I can't remember, like, he was, like, her manager, her producer. Um, And Jimmy's really stoned. Yeah. And the band leader comes up to him and says, like, everybody loves you, Jimmy, especially your wife. she was trying to collaborate or work in partnership with someone at that moment when he did that. And, you know, the band leader that winds up working with her later, that previously worked with both of them. Yes. Comes up to Jimmy and is like, everybody loves you, man, even your wife. And it's that first, it's that thing where it like reaffirms the, that first little inkling that you get at that party. Yeah. Where all the guys are kind of like, what's wrong with you, man? And you realize like that when it starts out as all in good fun. Yeah. Of kind of like, this guy just doesn't connect, does it? It eventually gets to a point where everybody's looking at him like, this guy really does not connect, does he? Yeah. And it, it is fascinating how from the very beginning these two people, their relationship is like doomed, but it has to happen yeah. at the same time. Because there's lessons to be learned. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's why it has to happen. <laughs> <laughs> you know, good or bad, there's lessons to be yeah. learned. So, yeah. yeah. So, like, for you, because uh, this is one of the things I think is really fascinating, is that I know that you are a huge fan of John Cassavetes. Yes. I'd like for you to talk a little bit about these performances, because... We talked a lot about it as we were watching the movie. And about these performances, about like these two characters. Because that's the thing, right? That makes this movie a little bit different and also so close to Cassavetes. Is that these are performances that go beyond performance. Yeah. And become a reality. Yeah. Like, to the extent I remember saying to you like, as we were watching, I was like, I can imagine calling my dad and asking him, like, hey, do you, do you did you ever hear this saxophonist Jimmy Doyle? Yeah. And him being like, yeah, you know, I do remember him. Like, you know, he was married to this woman. I can't remember her name. Oh, let me Google her real quick. She did this song your grandmother used to love. You're uh, New York, New York. Yes, yeah. Uh, what was her name? That could be so real. And I was like, oh, I know you're talking. Francine Evans, I think, was her name. Yeah, that was her. Like, that's how real yeah. these characters are, which is something that's very specific to only a small number of filmmakers. Yeah. I was wondering if you can talk a little bit about, like, these performances, like, for you. Well, for me, it was definitely a man and woman dynamic over who really was, like, the head of the relationship. Yeah. Um, and a lot of it came from, you know, parts of people's experience in their lives and one of jimmy doyle's was him being very i don't know i don't know what to say about him other than being just kind of like very like just insecure about a lot of life things um and that kind of made him react to her very negatively a lot um and you know that was one of the things i've always told you is like i would never want to 
be in a relationship with someone that sees me as their competition. Yeah. yeah. Because we should be people that support each other. Mm-hmm. We should not be each other's competitors. Yeah. You know, in the words of uh, <laughs> Daniel Plainview. Yes. <laughs> then we should not be yeah. each other's competitors. We should, yeah. we should be the one that's supporting each other, making sure that we're getting the best versions of ourselves with each other. Like mm-hmm. we're not, we shouldn't be the one that's like tugging at you to come down a level because we feel inferior to you. Yeah. You know? So that's a lot. What I saw was that push and pull mm-hmm. and that woman and man dynamic. Mm-hmm. Um, the sad thing about it though, what I realized is that, like you said to me, uh, Francine Evans was a natural born leader, mm-hmm. but she wasn't trying to um, assert that power with him no, always. No. But he would, he treated her like she tried to a lot. Yeah. But she rarely ever did. And there were times where, because she was, how you say, she was more seasoned, I think, yeah. than him in a lot of her life experiences. She would actually like suggest or give him advice or something, and he would literally take that as a punch to him. Yeah. And I think that's the what I saw in the whole dynamic in that relationship and in that story. It was so visceral, like it mm-hmm. was so real. Like I was like, I like I see this today. I see this today. Like I see this in a lot of relationships where. Like, whether it's the man, it's coming from the man or it's coming from the woman, there's this tug of war with who's, like, who's in charge. Or there's this tug of war where I don't have to listen to you, but the whole truth is, is, like, if you're meant to be together like you're supposed to, or you're some, or you're supposed to be a union, there are going to be areas where you may be, a, there you may lack. And there may be an area where that other person has mm-hmm. strength in. And you guys are supposed to work together to mm-hmm. calibrate it. You're not supposed to be pulling and pushing each other down. You're supposed to be lifting each other up. So in order to do that, you got to learn to compromise. And there were some parts where she was just stronger than him in because of her life experience. She was set. And she knew exactly. She had that confidence to know exactly what she was doing while he did not. And that's the parts where he felt very threatened. And that's really sad to me because I'm like, you shouldn't feel threatened. That is a strong, beautiful woman you have. Celebrate her. Yeah, absolutely. Because she would celebrate you as a man. Like, if you would have told her, and that's what another thing I saw in the movies, like, if he would have told her exactly what he wanted out of that whole thing, like, with his, like, career, where it was going, I think she was even, she would have been the kind of woman that would have even stepped down for him. Mm-hmm. She but, would have become his producer. Yeah, she would have stepped. She would have yeah. stepped aside and let him have his shine. Yeah. But the sad thing about Jimmy Doyle is he was a bad communicator. Yeah, he was. Except when he was really like angry or frustrated about something. Mm-hmm. Other than that, he was a really bad communicator. So he could never tell her and be that vulnerable about how he felt about things. It would come off very like just angry. Yeah. And that that was the very push and pull of that relationship. And ultimately, it was the end of it because he was—he wasn't ready for anything that she was ready for. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of times, you see that in relationships, just one person is not—is less ready than the other person, mm-hmm. and that's where you get a lot of friction. Yeah. Because if we're not moving in the same direction, then it's not going to work out. Yeah. And. I saw that with them, and that's why at the end, even after, like, it was so sad because he left her in the hospital. Yeah. He left her in the hospital. Yeah, and it's like, yeah. Yeah, and then you see years later where her son is laying down on the uh, couch asleep while she's in the studio recording, yep. like, music. 
Yeah. And I'm just like, but you don't understand. It's like, this is why, you know, this is a strong woman. She had to carry her son to work while she recorded. Yeah. And you as a man, you couldn't do the same thing. Mm -hmm. You couldn't do the same thing. Yeah. But she had to step up and do it. So why can't you? Yeah. So it was it like that's why I said nowadays I see something in it and it affects me really hard because I'm at that point in my life where those things matter. Yeah. Yeah. So now I like I can pinpoint those things that really affected me during the movie. Yeah. And I think Jimmy, like you said, he was just marching to the beat of his own drum. Uh -huh. But sometimes like he he could pull other people down with him. Yeah. Because he was like. I don't know. He was very self-destructive, and he could. Mm -hmm. It was it was very like self-sabotaging. Mm -hmm. While she kind of was a little more clear on where her path was. Yeah. He wasn't. He wasn't assured, and because of that, it, it could come off very self-destructive and self-sabotaging, and it sometimes it took other people down with him. Mm -hmm. And I and you know what? And that's the one thing I can say that I really respected a lot of out of him is that. Though I wish he would have done it way before he had a baby with her. <laughs> I, like, one thing I will respect is he knew when to walk away. He was just like, I can't keep pretending that I can do this. Mm -hmm. I'm not that man. Mm -hmm. So that he walked away. Mm -hmm. Some people stay in that stuff and it becomes more and more toxic and just really unhealthy. Um, and he he finally knew when to walk away. Yeah. So I can respect that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> now... The thing I think is very interesting about this movie is that, as with most movies that are kind of like this, whether it's Phantom Thread or Scenes from Marriage or this one, you know, there's oftentimes a sense of you kind of siding with one person or another. But you can't help it from that and, perspective, from that kind of dynamic, because it was such a push and pull relationship with a man and a woman. It mm -hmm. was like, it was about, you know, relationships. It was about partners and unions and like you can tell when it's toxic you can tell when it's not good for you absolutely but one thing i think is very fascinating is that when we rewatched it this time i am often somebody who relates more to francine mm -hmm. so i'm more in her corner because i have the tendency to let people be it in a day-to-day -day relationship or any kind of relationship i have the tendency to not really fully speak up and to a lot of times just kind of let people run over me and then just kind of be like, oh, well, you know, I mean, they're, they're, you know, I mean, they're a little, you know, yeah, they're nice when they don't do this yeah. <laughs> and kind of just like over justify, which, you know, she, she definitely does in her relationship with him. Um, the thing I think is fascinating though, was that on this rewatch, I chose to watch it from the perspective of Jimmy. Yeah. Cause that perspective is 100% there. Yeah. And what I was really curious about is whether or not it was. Because I think sometimes what can end up happening is when you watch a movie like this, you kind of realize, like, that perspective really isn't fully there. You know, it's like there's there's an aspect of a character that is mean just for the sake of it because you need to get the story moving, right? Yeah. And with this one, I don't really feel that that exists at all. But I do think that it ends up painting a very interesting portrait of being very naked and honest about a person that is artistically so ahead of his time 
that he has no room for anything in the present, who finds somebody who is able to balance both their art and the present. Yeah, you're right. And that's the fascinating thing, and that's why I said those characters... I was wondering why I kept feeling like these characters drew out to me in the sense that automatically my reaction is I would say, like, have you ever heard of Jimmy Doyle? And I think the thing that's very interesting about that is the fact that there was this aspect of what he was doing on the stage when they would show him that subconsciously filters in as this is something you wouldn't hear for another 10 years. Yeah. You know, subconsciously it's there without them ever saying that. Yeah. Right? Because there's no point at which they say, like, oh, that Jimmy Doyle, he's he's 10 years ahead of the rest of us. Like, there's never that moment. Yeah, and I understand his perspective in the sense of it seemed like it took him a long time to really, like, truly feel um, in control. Yeah. And kind of get a handle on things in his yeah. life. I mean, sometimes it takes people that long to really grow up. Yeah. You get what I'm saying? And that's what I saw from that perspective. It seemed like it just took him a long time. It took him a lot longer than Eliza to yeah. kind of, like, grow up. So... And you realize at the end that when it comes to... A relationship with a woman he never does but that's what i mean like it, you know that's what i mean like you can tell like it wasn't there for him yet it, mm -mm. he wasn't ready to commit he he jumped the gun way too fast yeah. way before he was ready but in like i would say still from that perspective i can see um francine's point of view so much more because from that perspective think about what happened that led to all of this you remember in the beginning, she told him, no, she kept turning him down. He was very persistent. Yeah. And he's charming. Yeah, but think about <laughs> what know? I'm saying. If you weren't ready, yeah. then why come after a woman? Yeah. That's all I'm yeah. saying. Why come after her if you're not yeah. ready? Because she, she kept turning him down. She kept mm -hmm. trying to get away. And this was a man that was hard set on having her. Yeah. But then when he got her, he didn't even know how to handle her. <laughs> yeah, because I think one of the things that I noticed about his character, but it's only a, a sliver of an aspect of what I can personally relate to, but there's a broader sense that I can see with his character, which is when it comes to art or movies or, you know, whether it's movies or music or whatever, whatever art form you're obsessed with, it's very, very easy to become cynical yeah. About what you're seeing around you. I have a habit of doing that a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I'm very, very cynical of a lot of the things I see coming out. I mean, you have heard me outside of just this show go on diatribes about how much I hate everything that's coming <laughs> yeah. out anymore. But that being said, there is also that sense, too, of having to be healthy about it, right? Like, yeah. you can... I can bemoan everything that's coming out, but at a certain point, it, like, I have to watch something. I can't, like, yeah. just kind of be Not only that, yes, you know. yes, you're right. You gotta watch something. Me, <laughs> meaning you have to actually step outside out of, that little, of that bubble out of, long out of enough. my little soapbox. Yes. <laughs> long enough to see something. Like, you yeah. have to, as much as you want to, like, bemoan everything, you have to step outside of it long enough to watch something or yeah. you'll never watch anything. And I think from the aspect of Jimmy, the thing that I saw with him was that he doesn't know how to do that. I, that's what I'm saying. His and commute, like, it wasn't there. <laughs> he, he doesn't know how to step outside of his little soapbox. He doesn't know how to 
you know, stop bemoaning everything. And one of the things that I have seen from seeing other things, be it, you know, stuff that I've read or, you know, other people I've seen in my life. One of the things I've always noticed is that a lot of times when people are dead set on their cynicism, like they can't get out of it long enough to see something else. It is really hard for them to sometimes be alone. Yeah. And that was definitely an aspect I saw with Jimmy. Yes. Because even when Liza goes back, you know, and Francine says, I want to have the baby. Yes. And I want to have the baby in New York. The doctor told me that if I travel, I could lose the baby. And I, I don't want to do that. She leaves. He stays on the road. The new singer that comes in, he starts a relationship with her. It is very obvious from the way that he deals with her that he does not care about this woman at all. Yes. But while his wife is at home <laughs> having their child, yes. he's sleeping with this other woman because he just cannot be alone. Like, he cannot stand to be alone. It's a very, very fascinating aspect of a person that I think was played out so beautifully because at no point was it judgmental. No. That was and that was something that I really it was it, not. they left it for us to be that way. That's what I said. It it was very open for us. Yeah. But was the movie been no, it was very objective. It was coming mm-hmm. from both sides. You could see it from both sides, right? Yeah. Like I said, but I think it was also meant to be mm-hmm. subjective for the audience. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because it was about that push and pull of a relationship. Yeah, absolutely. So why wouldn't you see it that way? knowing what relationships are or being in one or experiencing that you like you know what that dynamic is yeah so it was a little more like i'm I'm taking sides because i know what that's like yeah and one of the things i think is really fascinating rewatching the movie and watching it from jimmy's perspective is realizing that everything within de niro's performance everything within what he and liza and marty developed together points to the fact that somebody else can watch this movie coming into it with his perspective and look at the Liza character and immediately just go like, I cannot stand her. Yeah. She is driving me up a wall. Yeah. And it's very rare to see a story told that is that 50, 50. Yeah. That has that aspect. And even down to the standpoint of, you know, they don't pull the old school trick where she becomes the success and he becomes, like, washed up, right? Yeah, or vice both, versa. Yeah, they're both successful. They both become unbelievably successful yeah. in their own fields. Yeah, but to say in their own lane. Yeah. You know, she is a pop sensation Yeah. with that song. and Broadway sensation, really. Yeah, and it's, well, you know. Because she's mean, on the stage. Like, was like, at that time, though, you know, with the kind of music she's playing and the time period takes place in, that was pop. You know, that was like, that was like, you know, when big band music was all the rage. I mean, and so it's like, I just didn't know it was considered pop. Well, you know, I mean like what we would today consider like kind of (laughs) popular music, you know, like by today's standard. But I don't know if that was still. And that was kind of, you know, because she was a number one artist, right? Like, you know, but she was not number one in the jazz scene. Yeah. Jimmy Doyle was number one on the jazz scene. Yes. She was number one on the charts. On the charts. <laughs> yeah. you're right. You're right. And so, like, you see that aspect of, like, she had that voice that could communicate to everybody. Yes. And she was very successful with it. Yes. And that performance, but, you know, all the way down to her being in a movie and they recreated one of her dad's movies starring her. 
And then, of course, the final performance of the movie where she actually sings yes. the title track, which is my favorite moment of the movie yes, when she sings it well. to Jimmy. Yes. And he's sitting in the audience, and it's just... To me, the best moment of that movie is an extended sequence. It's from the moment that he comes in and sits down, and she sings... Start, you know, she sees him in the audience, starts singing that song. You see her do the dance, yes. you know, where she, and it's like incredible to watch. Yes. All the way to him walking outside, getting on the payphone, calling her, and he starts his shit right back up. Yeah. You know, like, come on, yeah, yeah I, I just want you that's to come outside. I, I want you to meet me. It's yeah. Just, he couldn't get out of that cycle. He, he and that's what I mean, because even at the end, you realize who, who stays in the cycle because. Yeah. He was about to do this whole shebang all over again. Yeah. It was like a cycle for him. It was never ending. He And it takes her to keep making him realize that he's in it. Yeah. Because you remember she stops at the elevator and she doesn't go any further than that. She goes, this is the end for me. I'm yeah. not going back. And it took her to not come out there for him to realize like, yeah, I'm doing it again. Okay. And, and because she knows his bull by now. Sorry. Yeah. She knows his game. She knows yeah. the play. Yeah. And he can't stop doing the play. <laughs> no, he can't. <laughs> and the thing that I love about it is that at the end, it goes back to what we were talking about, about what makes a good holiday movie. Yeah. There's melancholy and yes. a bit of sweetness to it. Yes. And a sense of finality to it. Yes. In the, when she stands at the elevator and pushes the button, when she gets into the lever, into the elevator, she's suddenly free. You know, she's suddenly severed this this tie. Yeah. And for him, when he hangs up the phone, and you just see that look on his face. Yeah. And he looks at his watch. He's proud of her. Yeah. He's proud that she didn't come back out. Yes. And that moment of just kind of like both of them without ever seeing each other or saying a word to each other. Their last interaction is a repeat of the very first interaction they ever had. Yeah. For us to cycle back to that and be like, but this time when she doesn't actually show up, we're closing it out. Yes. And because that's, that's the, the end of a cycle. And that is the end of a cycle. And the most important thing that we see that exists is when he sees his son. Yeah. And they actually have a good relationship. Yes. They actually and, have a good... I mean, because he, he comes in his life, and he's part of his life, and he, like, sends him stuff, he celebrates yeah. his birthday, but he does He's not with the, his... You know, yeah. he's not with the mother. And that moment when you realize that they as a couple have acknowledged, like, this ain't gonna happen, man. Yeah. But at the same time, when you look back at it, as much as there's a melancholy to that aspect of... You know, you as an audience, you want your main characters to be together. You know, you're watching a, a romance to some degree, you know, but it's like that aspect of... Now that of, I'm older, of, this movie didn't do that Yeah, for me. right. It, like it, at it, the it, end, you know how you say, like, you want the characters to be together, and, and I was yeah. like, good for you, girl. Well, <laughs> I mean, sorry. I think, I was like, I think that's the thing that's the most interesting is that very few movies do this thing where they, they point to, a, it, within the context of the ephemera of a musical. Yes. They point to a very adult relationship where you're simply saying the most important aspect is there because they both love that kid. Yeah. And they have both realized in their own ways this ain't going to happen. Yeah, they just weren't good and together. No. And but Their parents just yeah. weren't good together. And And that to me was kind of like the brilliance of the movie was realizing that all of those components were there. 
all of that was worked out and all of that emotionally exists yeah. within the story. Yes. So I guess to wrap it up. Yes. Do you have any final thoughts on New York, New York? No, I just, I really did see it from a different perspective than I used to. So, I mean, I really loved it. I enjoyed it this time around just because yeah. of the point where I am in my life. Like, I could really relate. Yeah. So I enjoyed the movie. I guess uh, another question of mine with this one is we're obviously, as this goes on, going to end up talking a bit about Scorsese. But where does this one sit for you in terms of his filmography? Oh, We've, one of my favorites, yeah. man. It's one of my favorites. Yeah. I don't care what no one else says. <laughs> what are some of your other favorites of his, though, that kind of sit with this one? Hmm. It's this one. And then it may be The Irishman. Mm-hmm. We had an amazing experience oh, seeing yeah. that. Yeah, and that I think film. that the experience yeah. surrounding the Irishman that we had was also what helped to make it like my second favorite. Yeah. Do and you want to quickly explain what that experience was? What do you us? mean? What like, like what? Like when we saw that movie, like what that experience was. That it was amazing it. because yeah. I got to see it like in New York. Yeah. You know, right there when we were visiting on Broadway, and we got yeah. to. See To Kill a Mockingbird. Yeah, the Aaron Sorkin. Yes. So, I mean, it was an all-around amazing experience in a very historical place. Yeah. Um. So... And we walked out of the theater right after it ended. Yes. It was a very emotional ending, obviously. Yes. And we walked out, and there were little sprinkles of snow. There and was. <laughs> it's like, that was a very... Yes, there was. Like, kind of magical way yeah. to walk out of that film. But yes. it was also raining a lot when we were out there. Yeah. So it was a little bit of sleet, a little bit of rain, and little sprinkles of snow for yeah. just for the walk home. Because remember, we left yes. the hotel right after to get something to eat, and that was done. Yeah. So it was literally just for the walk back yeah. after the movie that we got this like little bitty flurry <laughs> of snow, which was amazing. Yes, it was awesome. Um, so The Irishman and any others that you wanted to call out in that list of favorites? I mean, I can probably name a few, but then we'll be sitting here yeah. <laughs> all day. Yeah. <laughs> but I was going to ask you what I'll say is this: I named my top two. Yeah. What? What? Where does New York fall for you? And it's, if it doesn't fall in your top two, what is your top two? Well, it, it's it's definitely it's really close up there. I think that for me, my top two are are if I'm doing like the top two, they're kind of odd Scorsese movies. I really love bringing up the dead. Okay. That that's uh, that's like one of my favorite movies of his. Um, also, uh, bringing out the dead. I said bringing out the dead, like bringing out baby. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, bringing out the dead is one of my favorites. Um, I also really love uh, Shutter Island in particular. There's yes. something about that movie that okay. really yeah like messes with my head and haunts yes. me and I love the soundtrack. That soundtrack and, is amazing. Yeah, <laughs> and like I that's just a movie that to me is very, very special. But New York New York, New York is in like my top five of his films right along with like Silence. And, yeah, my third one might know, be Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah. Though, and it, it, because that's well, now I see, you got me thinking now. <laughs> this is why I said we'll be sitting here forever if I start to name things. We'll have to do I mean we I already know, know we're remember, gonna the do Irishman it. is yeah. third because it is New York, New York and, and then, then it's Wolf the Wolf. 
So the odd the odd thing about Scorsese to me is that there's Scorsese on two different levels, right? Yes. There's Scorsese most rewatchable. Yes. And then there's Scorsese best of. Yes. And to me, most rewatchable is when I get into Goodfellas, when I get into Casino, yes. when I get into Wolf of Wall Street. Yes. Those are my go-to movies. Yes. But if I do, like, these are, to me, his best films, I start getting into, like, Bringing Out the Dead. I start getting into The Last Waltz. Uh, oh, Last Waltz. Uh, a movie we watched that you just saw for the first time recently, Italian American. Yes. That sits up there yes. for me. Like, those are his films that in New York. Yes. New York is in that see, category where it's I sort mean, of see, like... As soon as you said it, that's it, why I said. It's like... going to sit here all day. New York, New York to me is one of those movies that it's so heartbreaking. It's so emotional. Yeah. I really can only stand to watch it once a year. Yeah. But, like, I can... If Goodfellas is on TV and I saw it three days ago, I'm, I can sit down and rewatch it. Yeah. You know, so... It was the same thing with Wolf of Wall Street. I think we, yes, that, that's I one think of those movies that we've rewatched yes, over and over so. and over again since right. it came out. Yeah. So to me, Scorsese is interesting in that way where you have most rewatchable and then the greatest films yes. that he made. And yes. you know where you put Tax and, and some of those to me are Some a of combination them are interchangeable. Yes. Yeah, like where it's sort of like, I would put Raging Bull yes. and Taxi Driver in that, both categories. Yes. You know, and Goodfellas, I think, sits in... Honestly, I think Goodfellas is more rewatchable. Casino is kind of the better film, yeah. like to me. But like, yeah, I don't know. That's like yes. that's a whole other conversation. Yes. But, um, I definitely am glad that we did this one as part of our holiday movies. Yes. It was great going back and revisiting it, and it was interesting pairing it with Edward Scissorhands, where <laughs> Edward Scissorhands had ended, and we were just kind of like. Oh, yeah, that was sweet. But it was still, like, it <laughs> but was, it was still amazing. Yeah, I was about to say it wasn't. And for me, it wasn't like oh, that was sweet. It was yeah, Aw. yeah, exactly. Because yeah. it was, it was, it was sad. Yeah, it was sad. It was, it, but like you know, it it sort of ended, and it was like, wow, well, okay, yeah, you know. But, but I mean, that's the feeling both of those movies had in common for me. I I think the thing with New York, New York was you know that one ended. And it was kind of like, whew. yeah. Oh, because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, you have that whoof right before it because it's it's a tour de force yeah. film. It's a movie that's but it takes you through an entire journey. Of it does. This couple, man. It does, and it, it's a um, they're both movies about people who are desperately searching for a sense of love yeah. and and a, a desire to be loved. Yeah. Um, and in both situations, they don't get to keep it. Yeah, you're so right. You know, it's like in, in, in both situations, they get to experience it. Yes. That experience defines the rest of their existences. Yeah. But in both situations, they don't get to keep You're it. right. It's very and short-lived. It's very short-lived. And the ending of both movies deals with the the reckoning of that finality of that relationship. Yes. Which I think is very, very fascinating for these two movies paired together. Yeah. That they are both... Uh, oddly iconic fourth films. Or, mm-hmm. Well, no, I guess the New York, New York actually came a little bit later. But like, they're they're uh, iconic kind of um, blank check movies. Yeah, you know, in in both cases, the, these were two situations in which both these directors got their blank check. In one situation, it was a failure, and the other situation it was a massive success. Yes, and in both situations, they went back to what they really love 
and they they went back to an older style of film and decided to do that again. Yeah. And it, it so they are a fascinating pairing, even if on paper they look like they very are different, completely yeah, far apart. Yes, <laughs> but they give me very similar like feelings. They do, yeah. And I I think that's one of my favorite things about when we start pairing movies like this is finding those yes. those little things. Um, so I guess to close it out, we'll talk a little bit about what we have coming up. So uh, we pushed this one so that we can get it up on Christmas Eve or into Christmas so that yes. it can be part of the holidays. Um, and then we're going to take a little bit of a break for the holidays. And then when we come back, we so we're not doing a, a throwback recommendation for this one. No. Because the episode that we're going to do when we come back is going to be Basically, all throwback recommendations. Yes. So, we don't have a throwback one. Yeah. All of them are throwbacks. Yeah. <laughs> so, our next one that we're coming back with is going to be a an episode dedicated to kind of true gems. Yes. You know, movies that we really, really love that are kind of off the radar or not really always talked about. Yeah. Or just forgotten about. Yeah. Maybe like, never... Maybe they weren't ever that big in the first place. Yeah. You know? And... A good amount of them are pre-1980. Yeah. A few um, of them. Yeah. I have uh, a couple that's not, but... I think most of mine are. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we, we, you know, it's uh, uh, between the two of us, a good amount of them are pre-1980. Yes. And, and, um, but they're also just movies that we just really love, that we want to talk about, that we go back to, you know, from time to time. And a couple of them are kind of, I know for me, are kind of newer discoveries. Yeah. Um, and then we're going to follow that up by getting into our 2022 top 10 list. Yes. And so part of us taking a break is also catching up on a few things that aren't out yet that we're going to end up seeing so that we can put, yes. you know, kind of give our two Little cents ranking on. Yeah. Of. <laughs> <laughs> so very exciting. So definitely tune back in when we come back for that. And, uh, Thank you all for listening and happy holidays and Merry Christmas. And Merry Christmas. And, um, yeah, we, uh, hope to see everybody when they come back. Yes. Awesome.